So I got a story for you today. On a fall morning in the late 14th century, a procession began at Julian's childhood home in the city of Norwich, England. And at the time, and for much of the Middle Ages, Norwich was the second largest city in England. It was a bustling center of commerce and trade industry and faith as well. You can still do a tour of all the cathedrals that are in Norwich, England. The procession continued down Conesford Street, and it gathered members of Julian's parish as they went. Julian herself, she was in the center with her friends next to her, and also the friar who played such a large part of her spiritual life. And it was the friar who first suggested that she walk this path. As they left Julian's parish behind and they came closer to St. Julian's church, members of that second parish began to join the procession until the whole crowd entered into the doors of the church. And then Julian lay on the floor as the bishop chanted psalms and over her and spoke words in Latin. A priest sprinkled her with holy water as her friend the friar read the story of Mary and Martha. Again, he read it in Latin. And then Julian got to one knee. She kneeled and said three times, Receive me, O Lord, according to thy word. Receive me, O Lord, according to thy word. Receive me, O Lord, according to thy word. And then she was led into a small room that would become her home for the remainder of her life. Once she crossed the threshold of that room, the door closed behind her, and she heard the lock turn on the outside of the door. And inside, there was just her, a small bed, a desk for writing, a bucket for waste, and a bucket for cleaning. Don't get them confused. There was a cross-shaped window where she could gaze at the steeple across the churchyard. There was a larger window where... She could receive local visitors who would come and seek spiritual care, who would ask for prayer, and who would even bring her trinkets and things to keep her ministry going. And then there was one more window into an adjoining room where a servant would bring Julian food and clothing, and most importantly for her, writing instruments. And for over 25 years, Julian lived in this room, writing in English the words that God had given her, praying for all the world and caring for the spiritual lives, not just of her own parish, but Christians began coming from across England, being sent by their priests to see Julian. And so often, because it was a smaller parish, Julian's priest would be in, or Julian's church would be in between priests. And so Julian became the one through line, spiritual through line for her community. And the words that Julian wrote in that cell are the oldest English writings by a woman that we have to this day. It is considered one of the most important spiritual works in, of literature in English. And yet as life-changing and encouraging as her words have been for centuries, the story of how Julian ended up an anchorist, that's what they called the women anchoresses or anchorites with men that would attach themselves to a community, to a parish, and live in these cells. 
The story of how Julian ended up as an anchoress in a cell in Norwich, England, is actually kind of a devastating look at the life of a young woman in 14th century England. And coincidentally enough for me, because I'm preaching today, Julian's triumph over the tragedies of her life have much to do with an experience the disciples had with Jesus one stormy night out on the Sea of Galilee. Our gospel reading for the 11th Sunday after Pentecost is Matthew 14, 22 through 33. And it reads, immediately. Did he wait? No, immediately. He made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he, Jesus, dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When, everyone, when evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat with the disciples, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we come to you sometimes in the dark of night, crying out in fear, Help us today to remember that you are coming toward us, hands outstretched, reminding us that you are here, that we need not fear, that you are with us always. And so speak to us today as we hear your words again. Speak to us. Help us to hear your words in our heart, that we might know you, understand you, that we might believe you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you were here last week, man, Peyton and Lily both did such an amazing job leading us through Scripture and the feeding of the 5,000. Like, I don't know about you, but when I think of the story, like, we call it feeding of the 5,000, right? So I go straight to the, well, it's life. I go straight to the food, right? I go straight to the fishes and the loaves and the hungry crowds. But Peyton and Lily did something to us, right? They made us start with Jesus, They made us start at the beginning of the story. You might remember that Jesus was on his way to grieve the murder of his friend, John the Baptist, and to rest his soul, to be alone. But he was interrupted by the needs of the crowd that had gathered on the shoreline. They were seeking hope. They were seeking healing. And rather than continue in the other direction, Jesus sailed his ship back to shore to those in need. And Jesus healed the crowds. He fed the 5,000 men plus the women and children. 
And after that, we get today's story of Peter walking on water. Only, again, I usually go straight to Peter walking on water. Like, that's the story I know. But thanks to Peyton and Lily, I'm reminded to actually start at the beginning and to see how Peter ended up in the water to begin with. And when we do that, we learn that immediately after everyone was fed and they gathered up the leftovers, Jesus sent everyone home satisfied and he made the disciples go out on a boat to cross to the other side of the Galilee to Gennesaret. And then Jesus finally gets his alone time on the mountainside. And he spends his time doing what? Praying. Praying. Meanwhile, though, the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee at night when a storm is brewing. Matthew tells us that the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. Was the wind against anyone this morning when you were trying to get here? And this kind of hit me this time around. Because think of it from the disciples' perspective. Like, you've just seen Jesus perform yet another miracle. He tells you to get in the boat late in the day. Like, dinner is over. They had to clean up and sail all the way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then a storm kicks in. And by the way, you know that Jesus controls the storms, right? Because the last time there was a storm out on the Sea of Galilee, he rebuked the wind and the waves and they calmed. I mean, I'd kind of be wondering, like, if Jesus didn't send us out here in the storm at night on purpose. Like, I'd kind of be wondering, like, right about this time when the boats are rocking, did Jesus cause our trouble, our difficulties, our pains? Did he make this happen to us? Back in St. Julian's Day, that was the prevailing understanding of why bad things happen. In the medieval church, human suffering was seen as a result of sin and punishment from God. Surely if something bad happened to you or someone you loved, you deserved it. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. Or maybe you were a casualty to someone else's punishment. So when Julian was nine years old in the spring of 1352 and Norwich was nearly wiped out by the plague, She and her mom were one of the few left standing. It had to feel like somebody or some buddies had messed up real bad for the entire town to be almost wiped out. Not even the priests were spared, much less the rest of Julian's family. Flashes of memories from that time would haunt Julian for the rest of her life. Ten years later, the plague struck again, taking the lives of Julian's husband and her children, but sparing her. Why? She asked herself, why was I spared? Why were my children taken? They're too young to have sinned. What could they possibly have done wrong, God, for you to punish them now? Or are you punishing me for not spending enough time with them, for forgetting to say my Ave Maria's the day my youngest child died? She remembered that. I didn't say my Ave Maria's. That's why my child died. It's my fault. Was it because I was too selfish or I spoke too harshly to the cook the other day? 
And as she looked around, why were the sinners and the saints both in her community dying indiscriminately? If this was supposed to be the will of God, if this was supposed to be a punishment from God, what had they done? What had she done? And what happened to the grace of God that I grew up celebrating every day with my mother from my earliest days? We praised God for his boundless grace. Where is that grace? For the next 10 years, she wandered in this haze of death and loss and misunderstanding. She lived out her days alongside her mother, caring for their neighbors, spinning fabrics, and practicing their faith daily despite her struggles, despite her doubts. And then illness struck Julian. She was lost in fever and delirium. She could hear the priest in the distance, this distant voice offering her her last rites. She said, I couldn't breathe. It felt like a weight was on my chest. I couldn't feel my body. This is death. I wonder at that moment if she was still asking why. Like, why is God punishing me? Why do this to me now? Like, haven't I suffered enough? I wonder sometimes if the disciples asked that question out there on the boat as the waves rocked them at night. Is this death? And why did Jesus send us out here? Like, why did Jesus send us into the storm? Surely he knows there's going to be a storm. He commands the wind and the waves. Why did Jesus do this? to us. What did we do wrong? Is it because we didn't think that, 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 that a couple fish and some bread was going to be enough for 5,000 people? Are we being punished for that? The disciples wouldn't have been the first, and Julian certainly wasn't the last to ask those questions. We still ask them today. How many of us have ever wondered, why is this happening to me? Why did that happen? What did I do wrong to deserve this? Why did she die? Why is he suffering? Why is God doing this to us? I mean, just this past year, it's been so troubling. We're getting priced out of our homes at an increasing rate. Kansas City, did y'all know this? We're on, a re- we're on pace to set another homicide record in our fair city. Our collective mental wellness continues to falter. Political divides continue to tear families, communities, churches, and school systems apart. Sickness and death affect us on a daily basis. Wars rage on. Natural disasters seem to be increasing every year. What is happening in Maui is truly terrifying, heart-wrenching. Like, I can't imagine. Like, I don't know about you, but my, my brain hasn't had the capacity to make sense of some of the images that I've seen. My heart doesn't have the capacity to absorb the pain of that trauma. My soul doesn't have the capacity to understand why, God, why did this happen? Why does any of this pain have to happen? What did anyone do to deserve this? But... You see, Jesus didn't leave the disciples to their pain. He didn't leave them to be bashed about by the waves 
alone and scared. He didn't leave them to be bashed about in their doubt. We read, early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. And at first, like, they were terrified all the more. Like, who is this? Is this a ghost? And they cry out in fear. Who wouldn't cry out? Like, the storm is raging. Imagine you're in the midst of a storm on a boat. Waves are crashing, and you see a figure walking on the water coming toward you in the chaos. Like, who wouldn't cry out at that point? And why didn't Jesus just calm the waves? He'd done it before. Why didn't he do it again? But I'm reminded, you know, sometimes the waves don't stop crashing. Like, sometimes it feels like our ship will never stop rocking. Sometimes we can't see hope for all the darkness, even when hope is literally walking toward us. And so Jesus arrives in the midst of the chaos of the waters. He's hovering over them, much like the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters of chaos at creation. And then Jesus speaks to them, take heart, it is I. And my favorite Jesus words, what does he say? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. How many times does he have to remind us and how many times do we forget? Do not be afraid. Take heart, for it is I. And you may not hear it in English, but that phrase, it is I, is super important. It is I. Because the Greek actually means ego, or reads ego, a me. I am. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. I am. Those are the same words that God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. Moses asked the Lord, Whom shall I tell the Israelites sent me? And God says, I am. Tell them that I am has sent me to you. And after Peter's faith falters when he steps out on the water, not by anything that Jesus did, by the way. Did you catch that, why his faith faltered? Not because he's amazed that he's walking on water. My faith might falter there. But what caused his faith to falter? He noticed the winds were still raging. The storm was still going. It hadn't stopped. Jesus was with him, but the storm was still there. Life was still hard. The waves were still crashing. And it's hard not to notice the waves crashing in our lives, even when Jesus is standing right in front of us. And so Peter's faith falters, and Jesus lifts him back out of the water, and the two of them step into the boat, and then the wind ceased to blow. And do you see that? What do the disciples say? Truly, you are the Son of God. And did you catch that? Do you see who who the disciples encountered in Jesus out there in the waters in the storm. He's hovering over the waters like the Spirit. He says, I am like God in the burning bush. And the disciples call him the Son of God. The Spirit, the Father, now the Son, the Trinity, all revealed in Christ in the midst of, of this storm. 
And even in the midst of the storm, he is with them. Even in the midst of the storm, God is still with us. Yes, sometimes God calms the storms of our lives, but sometimes the storms rage on. But in both cases, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is with us. As he was in the beginning, he is now and ever shall be. And in the midst of her fever dreams, when her mother and the priest, and even Julian herself had given up on her life, Christ came to her, walked across the waters of chaos to her, and she writes that the vision of Christ filled me with such joy that the pain, the fear, the doubt, they melted away. And this is what she wrote. She said, suddenly, the Trinity filled my heart full of the greatest joy. And I understood that it will feel that way in heaven. For the Trinity, she wrote, is God. God is the Trinity. The Trinity is our maker. The Trinity is our protector. The Trinity is our everlasting lover. The Trinity is our endless joy and bliss by our Lord Jesus Christ and in our Lord Jesus Christ. And through that experience of the Trinity of God as maker, protector, lover, the endless joy and bliss of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Julian came to realize that God is not the author of all the evils that befall us. God is not the cause of the storms that rage in our lives. God is not the cause of the plague or the loss of my family. And God is not the cause of this illness. Rather, she wrote, He is to us everything which is good and comforting for our help. He is our clothing who wraps and enfolds us for love, embraces us and shelters us, surrounds us for his love which is so tender that he may never desert us. You see, even in the midst of the illness that threatened to take her life, even on her deathbed, when last rites had been given the same way they'd been given for so many in her life, her friends, her family. Christ was right there beside her, reminding Julian that all shall be well, and all shall be well. And she wrote, all manner of things shall be well. Because of my great love for you. Just as Christ was right there with the disciples, revealing himself to be God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the waters, reminding them that even though the storm still rages, all shall be well. When Julian eventually recovered, she told the friar of her visions. The friar knew that the God Julian had encountered was the God that the people needed to know after all that they'd been through. But there were few avenues for women, a woman, to witness Christ to the greater community. And what's more, Julian wanted to write her visions down in English so that everyone might hear them. But in Julian's day, you didn't write things in English if you wanted to be taken seriously you wrote in French, or better yet, you wrote in Latin. And so the friar realized that for Julian to share the love of God that she experienced to all those who were struggling against the darkness, 
that she should become an anchoress, a holy woman attached to a local church, locked into a cell where she would pray without ceasing for all souls, where she could write whatever she wanted and where she could share the Lord's wisdom with people. And that's exactly what she did. In order to share God's love to everybody, she had to lock herself away for 25 years. She lived an unimaginably tragic life. Even when she was realizing God's purpose for her in this life, could you imagine having to be locked up in one room to do that? But in her darkest hour, Christ revealed in himself the boundless love that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has for each of us. And she came to trust that love. She came to trust that indeed all shall be well. It was the same thing for Peter and the other disciples out there on the storms. Though the winds continued to blow, they came to know through Jesus that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was with them and loved them and that all indeed would be well. And so now that you know what Jesus did, what will you do? Will you trust that God is with you? Will you trust that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves you? And will you trust that no matter how dark it might look right now, through God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that all will indeed be well. Because you see, that's what God's been doing from the very beginning. When the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos of the waters and the Word of God spoke since the very first day of creation, God has been making order out of the chaos of our lives. And he still is today. As it was in the beginning, is now and what? Ever shall be. Amen? Amen.